1988, Nike released and copyrighted one of the most famous strap lines in advertising. Some of you will already have it. Just do it. It's probably one of the most well-known strap lines in the history of advertising. 1988, uh, they, they copyrighted that. And here we are, 2020, still buying t-shirts with Just Do It splashed across the front. It kind of captures the essence of, of us participating in the sports that Nike provide the equipment for us to participate in. I don't know about you, if you're still active after New Year, congratulations. The 19th of January has passed, officially known as Quitter's Day. If you're still going now, you justifiably might wear a Just Do It t-shirt. However, I think what it gets to is, is at the heart of this story, surprisingly. It's not about listening. It's not about watching. It's about participating. Becoming part of. Engaging with. And just doing it. That's the story that God lays out before us in Gideon. And it's a story actually, and it's a, it's a reminder, I think, that we need to hear. I don't know where all of you are on this journey of faith. I suspect that in a gathering like this, we will be uh, sharing together some people who are looking on at this idea of Christian faith. Some of you might be thinking, I wonder what, wonder what this is all about. Can I take that step? Can I make that commitment? Will I be able to sustain? Is it worth it? Some of you might be right at the very beginning of just do it. The beginning of that journey of faith. Some of you might have walked this journey of faith for decades. But for all of us, we need to be reminded that the Christian faith is not an observational activity. It is a participatory engagement. It takes our lives. And so as we work through this story, hopefully uh, that will make sense. First thing I want to do is place ourselves. We've missed out so that we can get through the book of Judges in at least some reasonable time. We've missed out the previous chapter, chapter 5. It is a breathtaking chapter. It is amazing. I would really, really encourage you to go home and read through chapter 5. It's this fantastic song. Last week we saw the, the triumph of God's people over um, Sisera, who was oppressing God's people, and Deborah and Barak and Jael secure victory for God's people in the most astounding way. Sisera is destroyed, and then Deborah and Barak sing this amazing song. That's what it tells us in the Bible. They sing the song of Deborah and Barak, this amazing song of praise. I don't know how that worked out. I don't know whether they, they, they kind of took themselves away for a, a few hours or a day or so and actually wrote the song. 
uh, kind of worked it all out, and, um, and they, or, or maybe it was kind of like spontaneous Hebrew rap, and it was just out there straight away. But it was this incredible kind of serenading voice of the glory and majesty of God and what He has done for His people. That's where the focus is in that song. Most listen to these words. This is kind of like glorying in the defeat of a bloodthirsty enemy. We've got to remember that. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heba the Kenite. Most, this is the song. These are words of the song. Most blessed of tent-dwelling women. He asked her for water and she gave him milk in a bowl, fit for nobles. She brought, she brought him. Her hand reached for the tent peg. Her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet he sank, he fell, there he lay. That is some word, isn't it? That is like, wow. We cannot understand the, the excitement of that unless we place ourselves in that ancient world where power is all about God's blessing on the people who have received that power. So those followers of Sisera, the nations that rose up against God's people and have become powerful oppressors of God's people are turned around, destroyed by Deborah and Jael. And they by killing Sisera, raise themselves to a point of victory. What does that say in the ancient world? It says that the God of Deborah and, and Jael is the true, living, triumphant God. That's what they understood. <laughs> and so they sing about it. And that chapter concludes, So may all your enemies perish, Lord. But may all who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. Then the land had peace 40 years. There is something, if, you, if you've been following this story, there is something remarkably telling in that last sentence. The land had peace for 40 years. Do you remember God's people? They were walking around the wilderness for 40 years. And then they went into the land. And now they have peace for 40 years after Deborah and Jael and Barak have secured victory. And now what? It seems to me as though that kind of bookmark punctuation is almost saying what it said about the wilderness. And that generation died out and so they could go into the land. And now the generation that remembered the triumph of Deborah, Barak and Jael have died out. And now what? Beginning of chapter 6. What happens when the generation dies out? Chapter 6, verse 1. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Do you see that? Again. 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 They've been there. But the generation that went before and remembered the glory 
have not communicated it or the next generation haven't listened or it's become boring and old hat and forget about it. We're not really interested in that God anymore because everything that's going on in Canaan is amazing. Forget that stuff. We'll get into this Baal and Asherah stuff, thanks very much. Forget that God who is not seen. We want big statues. We want drama. We want excitement. We want the fun and excess of sexual activity that worships the gods because man, that feels like really great stuff. And they forgot the God who had delivered them. And what happens? They end up in the hands of the Midianites. Why? Because God is a vicious, vindictive God. Is that why God does it again? No. Remind ourselves again and again through this journey. They end up in the hands of the Midianites because God is a God of grace who will not leave them comfortable in their sin, but will put them in a place that pulls them up short, causes them to think, and the place that they end up in is shocking. Seven years. Every time they plant their crops, every time the, the crops have, are flourishing, what happens? The Amalekites wade in. Midianites wade in. Literally camp on the land, wreck the crops, take out whatever they want. And what happens, we can see in the early part of the chapter, God's people end up fleeing and living in caves with the little bit of food that they could take with them, scratching around for bits and pieces, while the land that they have been promised is handed over to those who do not work on it. Do you see that? Do you see the narrative that's going on? They, those that do not work on the land are blessed by the land, and those that do work on the land are not blessed by the land. The land that God has given them and this marauding mass who we know because of the way the ancient world worked, that they didn't simply come along, push them away, and camp on their land. They would have done whatever they possibly could to the women, to the men, to the children, so that they literally were fleeing for their lives. That's where they are. <laughs> because we've forgotten the God who delivers us. We've forgotten the God who is faithful. Do you know in our Christian walk, I know, and many of you will know, that we end up in really dark places. Precisely because we have forgotten the God who is faithful. So what happens? God does not leave us comfortable in our sin. He, he pushes us into a place where we are reminded we should not be here. We've forgotten the God who we love. That's how gracious our God is. That He will not allow us just to drift away. Indifferent to whether we follow Him or not. He places us reminds us and tells us, come back to me. 
And so we ask ourselves, right at this point, what do God's people need? What do they really need? What, what, what's, what's our answer? Generally, when we articulate, what do we need in our times of crisis? I think we, without kind of stereotyping too much, we generally fall into two categories. We generally fall into the category of, I want the fix. I want the solution. Give me the, the way to fix this, which is often characterized as the male response. The, you know, give me the answer, give me the fix. Or rather than give me the fix, give me somebody to listen to me, to talk to me, to allow, to allow me to speak, to, to just listen, be, be a hearing ear. If I just unload it, it will feel as if I've made progress. So we do two things. We look for a fix or we look for somebody to listen to us. Both of those can be helpful. And you might think that's precisely what God's people need at this point, but that is not what God gives them. Look at verse 7. He gives them something before he gives them Gideon. Look at verse 7. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and I delivered you from the hand of your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you've not listened to me. What they needed, more than what they thought they needed, they didn't at this point need a deliverer. They needed to hear God. They, need to, they needed to listen, not speak. They didn't need a fix right at this moment in time. They need, didn't need somebody to listen to them right at this moment in time. They needed God to speak to them. Do you know what? If we learned that lesson, if we learn that the God who speaks is the God who loves us, and that actually when He speaks to us, we are placing ourselves in the line of the very best care, we will be in a much better place. In our crises, in our difficulties, in our hardships, let me speak to you with... Let me point the finger at you with three fingers pointed back at me, which is this. When we are in crisis, we need to hear the God who loves us. We need it. We think so much about what the fix should be. <laughs> we need so much to offload but we need to just be calm and listen. Because what does the prophet say? He reminds them what God is like. He reminds them what God has done. We sang a song and Jude opened it really helpfully. 
reminding ourselves of what Jesus has done is the greatest help that we could ever have. That's why Jesus, when He spent time with His disciples preparing them for Him not being present, He said to them, right, I want you to carry this activity right the way through until I return. The activity I want you to continue is to eat bread and drink wine because I want you to continually remember what I have done. That's what's going on here, isn't it? That is precisely what is going on with this prophet. He's saying, you need to remember what I've done more than you need a fix right at your moment now. Because if you remember what I have done, it will shed light onto where you are right now. The things we need more. Tucked away in this section is biblical, theological, historical dynamite. Look at verse 11. Gideon is currently threshing wheat in a wine press. It's the most surprising thing because you don't thrash wheat in a wine press. Why would you thresh wheat in a wine press? Because the way you thresh wheat is you, th- you throw it up into the air and the clouds of, of dust, the lightweight stuff, is blown away by the wind and you create huge clouds. And he's threshing wheat in a wine press so that he doesn't give the game away to the Midianites that he's got some grain. He's hiding away. And we read this. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite. That is astounding. Mind-blowing. The, one of the most significant events in the whole of the history of the Old Testament. Why? Because it's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's called a theophany. (laughs) A pre-incarnate presence of Jesus. Jesus comes and meets with him at that moment in time before Jesus is born of a Virgin Mary. How do we know that? How do we understand that that's what Gideon understood of what was going on. Well, we understand going through to verse 22 because this is kind of the brackets of this event. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. God says, don't worry, you're not going to die. Because absolutely what Gideon understood was if, if, if anybody looks into the face of God, they're going to die. And so what we see here is this kind of, kind of shorthand, if you like. It's, it's a title which means God present. The angel of the Lord appears on a number of occasions. The angel of the Lord appears 
and Gideon realizes the significance of the event, understands that he's seen God, and believes that he's now going to die. If we are struggling with that, we're looking at this thinking, really? We have a much bigger problem with Jesus. Because actually what Jesus claims to be is exactly that present being that we see in Judges chapter 6. But we understand that he spent more time with us. We understand that he claimed to have died, to have been buried, to have risen again, and to return to heaven. This stuff is the foundation right at the heart of what we believe. If that is not true, everything falls apart. And so to expect that Jesus might make his tentative presence preparing us on the journey of understanding what God is like, it is not a surprise that he might do that. But what we see really at this point is, is Gideon beginning his spiritual journey. Gideon beginning, if you like, if we want to carry on the Nike analogy, Gideon is going from his couch potato to marathon. He's going from his spiritually fearful to a spiritual warrior. That's the journey that he's going on. And here we have him right at this point in time being confronted by no less than God himself. And what does he say? If, you, if it's really you, show me a sign. What does he go? He goes and gets broth, meat, bread. Places it on a rock. And the most surprising thing happens. The angel of the Lord reaches out with his staff and consumes the bread and the meat and the broth in fire. Burns it away. What is going on there? What, why is that significant? Because the angel of the Lord is pointing to the sacrificial system that has been laid down for God's people. And he's saying, I make myself present. I show you the sign by miraculously fulfilling sacrifice in front of you. And Gideon is blown away. I'm going to die because of seeing God. What would you say to Gideon at this moment in time? Oh man, you are so pumped. Forget this, forget this couch potato and, and you are, you're ready for a marathon. It's almost like you've got a spiritual injection of awareness and understanding that you are away now. No. <laughs> Some fearful steps. Verse 25. That same night the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah, the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. 
And because he was afraid of his family and townspeople, he did it at night rather than daytime. You see that? Man, come on. You've just been present with God. He's just incinerated the offering miraculously in front of you. You're then told to go and to wage war on the false god Baal. Not with anything dramatic, actually. It's not like you're to take on the whole of the town. You're to go and you could... It's great big wooden pole which is the Asherah set up to worship Baal. To become, if you like, the, the present sexual partner so that Baal would make himself present in this moment. You go and chop down that horrific representation of false worship. You chop it up. You set it on fire and you burn the, the offering. You bring an offering as described by Yahweh in place of the offering that is described by Baal. And he does it at night because he's frightened. Do you know what? I love that the Bible is honest about us. You'd say, come on, Gideon, wouldn't you? In fact, this is fairly appropriate. Gideon, just do it. Just get on there. You've, you've had all of the exercise. You've had all of the spiritual preparation that you could possibly need. There is nothing that you should be afraid of. <laughs> and yet he is. Because he's frail and weak. He's like you and me. And far from God crushing him. Far from God turning around and saying, don't you respond in the right way with bravery and courage? It seems as though the faithful God is almost saying to him, well done Gideon. You've managed two kilometers of fast walking. You've done a bit. Now keep going because that is not the end of it. That is not the marathon. Chopping down that wooden pole and creating an altar and, build, and burning the offering, that's not the end of your spiritual journey. That's not the end of you being the spiritual warrior that God's people need. But I tell you what, Gideon, well done because you've made a start. Maybe it was the dead of night. Maybe there was fear filling your heart. But you have made a start. Jesus had exactly the same response, I would say, with a, a man called Nicodemus who came to him at night because he was fearful of those around him. And what did Jesus say to him? He didn't say to him, what's up with you? You're supposed to be a spiritual leader and you're fearful. What's wrong with you? No, he, he laid out before him, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. He was kind and gentle with him. He explained to him what it meant to come to faith in him, in the midst of his fear. And so, Gideon begins his spiritual marathon. So we move from divine presence to, if you like, fearful steps 
But I would say that the next is dithering with the divine. Let's move on. Verse 33. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces, crossed over the Jordan, and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon. He blew a trumpet, summoning the Abiezrites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they went up to meet. You're on the way. This is looking really, really good. You've seen the gathering of those who are opposing this God, who, are, who is the, the God who the people worship, who are now being oppressed by these Midianites. And so what do you do? You take a trumpet and you start to gather all of the people. You have moved, Gideon. You've moved from being doubting whether it's even possible, so show me a sign, and so you get the sign of the sacrifice. Going on a step further so that you're willing to take uh, an axe to an Asherah pole in the middle of the night, and now you're willing to blow a trumpet, it feels like you are really flying. But what does he actually do? Having done that, Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I'll place a fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I'll know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day, squeezed the fleece, and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me just make just, just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. You getting frustrated? But this time, make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry, all the ground was covered with dew. What do you feel like doing right at this moment? What this narrative is taking us to is the point where we want to get hold of Gideon and shake him and say, come on, just do it. Just do it. What is wrong with you, man? How many times does God need to promise that he will be with you? He's proved you to you again and again and again. That is how the narrative flows. It's taking us to a place where we should be frustrated with Gideon. You know, I think that this particular little part of the Bible, one of the dangers, let's take a step back. If you're walking the Christian pathway, and you're trying to work out, how should I live? One of the worst things that you can do is to take a kind of a, 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 kind of a can opener and, and just kind of cut out a little chunk of the Bible and say, I'm going to grab a hold of that and that looks good. 
This is not performative. This is not presenting to us. This is the way to be. This is presenting to us. We should be frustrated with Gideon. What's up with you? Here's the question. You're faced with whether or not you should do this. What are you being asked to do? To fight against the enemy of God. That's it. You're being asked to fight against the enemy of God. Do you need, do you need a decision whether that's the right thing or the wrong thing to do? Of course not. It's the right thing to do. God has said he's been, he will be with you. He's proved to you with one of the most dramatic events in the history of the Old Testament, the presence of Jesus alongside Gideon, that he will be with you. And then you want to ask twice, are you really going to be with me? Do not take this little fleece incident and use it as the mantra for how we make all of our Christian decisions. It's not what it's there for. It's there for us to get angry with Gideon and say, just do it, man. And yet, our God is grace-filled and patient and kind, and understands the frailness of Gideon, and recognizes his weakness, and he makes the fleece wet and the ground dry, and he makes the fleece dry and the ground wet, not because he's having to conform to the request of Gideon, but because he's willing to work with the frailty of us weak human beings. There's a beautiful verse in Psalm 103 in verse 14. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. That is the God who loves you. So when you're looking at this thinking, do you know what? I dither. I feel more like Gideon a lot more of the time. And you're saying we shouldn't do this, we should just crack on and just do it? I'm saying, yeah, we should just crack on and do it, but you know what? The God who we love and the God who we worship is kind and patient and willing to be the most gracious encourager of the weakest of us on our journey because that is what our God is like. Do you know pretty much the same thing happened in the New Testament? A very similar event. How do we know that we can trust God? Because He's done it in the past. And God's, uh, Jesus' disciples knew just that. They, they've experienced three years of following Jesus, seeing remarkable miracles, seeing him raise people from the dead, and then seeing him crucified, having told them that that is exactly what would happen, having told them that he would die, and then his disciples get this news that he's risen again, and all of them should be overjoyed. They should be triumphantly singing. 
And Thomas says, no. Not until I can put my fingers in the wounds in his hand and my hand in the wound in his side will I believe. And because of that, Jesus confronts Thomas and beats him up and accuses him of being weak. No. Jesus appears to Thomas and he says, put your finger here. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. He says, Thomas, I know what it's like to be as dust. I know what it's like to be weak. And I, I know that that's what you said you needed. And so come and do it. Because I am here to support you and encourage you and take you on a journey, not to crush you. And what does Thomas, Thomas do? When Jesus says, stop doubting and believing, he falls on his knees and he says, my Lord and my God. Get it. What Jesus has said he will do, he does. And because he's done it in the past, we can trust him for the future. And so part of us wants to say as we conclude this, if we are in different places on the journey of faith in Jesus Christ, let me encourage you that the God that you are considering serving and giving your life to is a God who will not crush you. He will not crush you. He might press you really hard when you are going in a crazy direction, just like God's people here. But when you are weak, he will not crush you. When you listen to him, he will pour the balm of Gilead, as the Bible describes it, upon you. He will just soothe you with his anointing presence. And if you're just beginning on that journey, that's what you have alongside you as the God who you worship. And if you are coming towards the end of the journey or if you've been following this journey for years and years and years, and sometimes we might say, like Gideon, is really? I look around, is God really here? Is God really doing anything? Look at the difficulties in my life. Look at the hardships in my life. Look at the trials and the stuff that's going on. Listen to him. He has never crushed you when you were on your knees before. And he never will. That is the God who we worship. So just do it.